Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. Today I am joined by Chris Serwinski, ACGA's Director of International Policy, and John Neuer, our telecommunications expert, as we discuss the coronavirus's impact on the telecommunications industry. In response to the coronavirus pandemic, an almost unimaginable percentage of economic activity has moved online. This is having an immediate impact on network operators in terms of costs to avoid service disruptions, as well as revenue impacts as consumers defer only the the most essential costs. Longer term, carriers and network operators will face pressure to expand their services into unserved areas, as well as new competitive dynamics. Policymakers are already considering regulatory as well as fiscal policies to ensure that U.S. networks remain robust and broadly distributed. I'd now like to turn it over to Chris to lead the discussion. Excellent. Thank you, David. And of course, thank you, John Neuer, for joining us, and John East as well, our Director of Research. As you said, there are a number of immediate issues facing carriers right now, including a pledge not to disconnect those affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And then there are, of course, some longer-term structural changes that are going to be born out of this crisis as well. But I want to start with the immediate issues and some of what has already been done or is being debated in Congress to help out some of these carriers. Johnny, maybe you can run us through what was included in the House Heroes Act, which was recently passed and, of course, has not passed the Senate yet. And what's the status in Washington, D.C. on another coronavirus relief bill? The HEROES Act passed the House has a number of different buckets of funding for connectivity. There's $1.5 billion for the Emergency Connectivity Fund. There's $4 billion for an Emergency Broadband Connectivity Fund, smaller pot of money for the Indian Health Service, for telehealth, and money for schools. But that bill is not going to pass in its current form. The Senate, I had anticipated that, that a lot more work would be occurring on the bill in June, of course, still early June, but there's some indications in the last two days that the Senate may actually wait until July when they have a compressed schedule because of the July 4th recess and August recess to pass something. Of course, the dates of those recesses could change. So rural Republicans then are going to be kind of on board for more rural funding that might be included in something that Majority Leader McConnell eventually introduces. That, of course, would be dependent upon there being money for infrastructure in there. But do you think that the pressure on congressional Republicans right now is just increasing just from the sheer amount of people who are working from home and these rapid changes to the work environment and also distance learning for kids? Well, certainly for children, that is a priority for school systems. People working from home, it's probably less of a priority to the extent that we've had a lot of people at home and figured out how to manage the Internet, but certainly the Internet came under strain. This is a popular issue. It's a bipartisan issue. Some of it is related to coronavirus. Some of the funding I would anticipate would come in future bills, too. For instance, an infrastructure bill, if we continue to have significant levels of unemployment, it is something that unites inner city lawmakers, suburban lawmakers, rural lawmakers, not a part of an issue. And then outside of what Congress is considering, John Neuer, what does the FCC will have to work with right now? What pots of money exists for incentivizing carriers or expanding broadband service to rural America? The FCC has played a role on both sides of the pandemic response. You know, the, the initial pledge that the carriers took, the Keep America Connected pledge, was, if not initiated, heavily endorsed by FCC Chairman Pai. 
And the concept of this pledge was you don't need to create a fee holiday that bills are going to ultimately be payable, but that the carriers would not disconnect anyone for failure to pay during the course of this pandemic. You know, I think that underscores and recognizes what David said at the outset, the massive amount of our economic activity moving online during this pandemic. The school system from elementary through graduate school has moved online. In that context, if someone, because of the pandemic, was unable to pay, disconnecting them would have a disproportionate negative impact than it would in the ordinary course. So the FCC was heavily involved in that, in encouraging the carriers to do that. The monies that the FCC has at their disposal, they've got existing programs that have been authorized by the Congress and been in place for decades. The Universal Service Fund, they oversee the Intercarrier Compensation Funds and other things. So what the FCC is doing, ostensibly in response to this pandemic is really just shaping things that they'd be doing otherwise. You know, next week, the FCC is going to move forward on its Digital Rural Opportunities Fund, which is actually $20 billion over a decade. And that creates incentives for carriers who otherwise wouldn't have an economic model to provide service in rural areas. They get to participate in a reverse auction. The FCC determines market signals on who's willing to serve a hard-to-reach, underserved community for the least amount of subsidy. The carrier who comes forward with a plan that says, I can serve that market for the least will get a subsidy from the government. So the FCC is reshaping around the margins programs and funds that they already have, but the political pressure for them to do it quickly, you know, is increased in this environment. The pledge not to disconnect is a noble one during this pandemic, but does this set a precedent for sometime in the future I don't know, during hurricane season, for example, you know, where people aren't required to make payments. This is something that the carriers care very much about, and it really does create, to your point, this was a laudatory public service commitment that they took. But the danger is that at just the time that their networks are under the highest amount of strain, requiring the greatest amount of OPEX and new CAPEX investment, if the government were to go beyond just you know, encouraging them to take this step, you have the negative implication that just when the, the networks are most important, they don't have the funding they need to keep in place. So John East referenced the portion of the HEROES Act. There's $4 billion in that legislation that does two things. It both codifies the pledge, but then provides $4 billion to pay for it. I think that's one of the things that is going to be irreconcilable in the Senate. The Senate is never going to agree to codify, well, if there's an emergency, you just don't have to pay your bills. That said, they do want to find a way to deliver money to the people who have been most negatively impacted. While there isn't a published Republican bill on the Senate side that deals directly with these issues, there have been conversations about some sort of voucher system. So for people who receive the maximum amount of subsidy from the Treasury, the $1,200, that they could get some sort of a subsidy a payment to help them deal with these bills that have been put off because of the pledge. Because like as I said, for the pledge, it doesn't mean that there's forgiveness for these bills. It is that you just won't get disconnected. But what's going to happen is this goes on for six months. People are going to be facing bills of several hundred dollars. So the, the codification of the pledge is something that the carriers are adamantly, adamantly, adamantly opposed to. And I think they've got a sympathetic ear. So I think in the House bill, the money is going to be a place of common ground with the Senate and with the Republicans, but the codification is going to be a non-starter.
And that brings us kind of into this conversation about the longer term impacts on the carriers and on the industry writ large, because you already made the point that at precisely the time when we're moving large chunks of people onto these networks, there is such uncertainty out there over the long term impact, economic impact of the downturn on the balance sheets of these very companies. But it seems like at the moment, they don't really have a choice but to invest. That's right. They need to invest to keep the networks up under increasing strain. They need to invest going forward to deal with a dynamic competitive environment. And by that, most thinking about the post-Sprint TMO merger. So now you've got new TMO, the two big incumbents, AT&T and Verizon. And as part of the government's framework for letting the Sprint TMO merger go through was the expectation that Charlie Ergen and Dish would have the resources necessary to emerge as a fourth competitive carrier. I think we're entering a time where you could see pricing competition increase, where T-Mobile has been undercutting the AT&T and Verizon by price has been a key component of their competitive strategy. They have agreed not to raise prices, so there's really no way for prices to rise. And then if Charlie Ergen is going to be successful in entering into this market at all, he's going to have to be disruptive in terms of pricing in order to attract consumers to a new service. That said, I think the response of the big carriers is going to be product differentiation through reach of coverage, speed, reliability, the delivery of associated solutions and services, combinations of content, other things that differentiate their products in ways other than just price, but also require massive capital investment to move forward. And on top of that, you've got the the, the pre-COVID landscape where industry and government were very focused that we were in this nation state you know, contest with China on which economy was going to be the first, the fastest, the most successful in deploying 5G across the economy and reaping the associated sort of macroeconomic benefits of that. So the government is going to be pushing them to invest. China competition is going to be an incentive by their big enterprise customers who are going to be expecting them to bring them a more robust 5G network. And they've got the competition amongst themselves with a newly enabled competitor in DISH and a newly expanded and resourced competitor in in Nutima. You know, if you're talking about the macro competitive landscape, obviously China is such a big part of that. And that certainly has implications for ORAN. Is ostensibly a large purpose behind it, right? You want to increase interoperability and basically allow for them to compete with people like Huawei, right? So ORAN is very important from both a commercial economic standpoint and a security standpoint. So even though it is viewed as a solution to the security threat posed by Huawei and Chinese-sourced telecommunications infrastructure, It really had its genesis in the big carriers looking for ways to bring competitive pressures into the network infrastructure space and to reduce costs. So for all the reasons we just talked about, where the carriers are under this massive pressure to increase their investment, they're going to be looking for ways to reduce costs. And ORAN is viewed very much through that lens. One of the issues there, again, and this gets back to Charlie Ergen and DISH, is ORAN going to be ready enough for prime time? While the carriers are all in favor of it, lots of the carriers are adopting a walk-before-you-run posture. because They still need to have support from Ericsson and Nokia and their existing vendors to deal with all their legacy network equipment. And there are still technical challenges about bringing ORAN to the front. So 
They're all committed to moving and getting to that end state of having open radio access networks, but they want to do it in a way that doesn't disrupt their existing networks. So then the question for DISH is, is it going to be ready in time for them to make the deployments that they've committed to the FCC as part of the TMO merger to deploy their network at scale in the, the time that they're required to? And John, we've, we've talked a lot about 5G, obviously, as being so critical to the widespread adoption and, and the improvements in rural broadband in the United States. And I can't help but wonder if the coronavirus pandemic has to slow down the widespread adoption of 5G. We have seen positive news this week, for example, though, with the C-band. The satellite operators have agreed to the rapid clearing plan, and so that should allow the auction to go off in December. But, you know, do you think that there is any impact on the rollout of 5G, or if anything, has it incentivized investment and kind of sped it up? There's a couple of pieces to that. So macroeconomic disruption typically have a negative impact on industry capital investments. I think the, the difference here is that at the same time we're having macroeconomic disruption, we are having layered on top of that a recognition by the government, by industry, by consumers that they have to have these networks. When you've got a network that was built with the expectation that most homes were, if not empty, lightly used from a network perspective during a workday to suddenly having, you know, students trying to telelearn, parents conducting businesses, Zoom calls, whatever it is, the carriers are going to have to respond to that. And so there are some inputs that are necessary for those build-outs, and you raised the issue of spectrum. I would point out, you know, you and I have talked about the seed band and the expectations on that spectrum for a very long time. And while we never believed that the C-Band Alliance plan as articulated was going to go forward, there was really very little doubt that that spectrum was going to get repurposed for broadband, just under very different terms than what the, the C-Band was proposing. And that's, that's actually what is happening. But to your point of the, the need is there, the demand is there, but is the money there in reality? And I think one thing we should be looking certainly from a public policy perspective is in these hugely capitally intensive industries, you know, the one place that companies have historically gone to find economic efficiencies is through scale. And that's why we've had the mergers that have led us to the, the four large wireless carriers. I do not think that policymakers from an antitrust or from the regulatory standpoint would allow consolidation amongst those four. But that doesn't mean that those four aren't going to look for partners that bring scale that enable them to make more investment. So some mergers that, you know, once upon a time might have been seemed unthinkable. More cable consolidation, cable consolidation with wireless carriers, finding partners and or acquirers in the big tech space. Those are mergers that are going to be considered because of just the economic rationality of them. If they go forward, they're going to be justified by the need to make all these investments that we've been talking about, satisfying important public policy goals that the government has, rural build out, serving underserved communities in urban areas, the race to 5G. So it'll be interesting in that context, whether and in the new environment in which we live, whether or not policymakers and antitrust officials would be more open to some of those kinds of combinations they wouldn't have in the past. You know, I, I don't know that they will still have the luxury to take a knee-jerk, big-is-bad approach and shut these things down. If, if a merger comes forward that brings new capital, new business plans, and new energy into robust rollout of these networks, the policymakers are going to have to figure out how to think about it.
Sure. So, so the argument at that point is basically allowing these companies to achieve scale through M&A, albeit some sort of unconventional, if you will, M&A, will allow them to increase CapEx and, and therefore make service better at lower cost for the U.S. people. One thing that I've been thinking about, too, obviously, we're sitting here June 3rd, and there's a presidential election five months away. We still don't have any clarity as to where the Senate will be, where the House will be, and where the presidency will be. It could all be under the Democrats. It's not out of the question that that would be the ultimate scenario here. Let's say that we do have Vice President Biden winning the presidency and the Senate flips. Are there any like immediate impacts in your mind that feed into this conversation today? I think there is broadly a bipartisan consensus around the importance of these networks. And, you know, it's kind of remarkable that the networks have stood up as well as they have. I'm unaware of any serious service outages, but the networks by and large have stayed up. And that is largely the result of pro-investment, pro-competition policies that more or less been bipartisan. I think the difference between the two, if there is a, a complete shift from a Democratic FCC as opposed to a Republican-controlled FCC, Republicans tend to put more faith in an environment for robust competition, and that robust competition will provide the carriers with incentives to build and deploy and improve their services. And Democrats largely have less faith in that sort of, you know, purely economic solution, and they intend to embrace broader subsidies to directly pay consumers and or providers to enter into market. In either instance, there's going to be, after we get through the immediate COVID response, there's going to be a desire for stimulus packages, and both sides will be including direct broadband subsidies into those packages. I think if it's completely under the Democrats, those packages will be larger, and they will be more proscriptive. In order to get the money, you're going to have to make much more detailed commitments on how, where, and when you're going to serve, as opposed to you know a, a Republican plan, which would be much more get money to consumers and incentivize competition. Well, we'll be watching very closely for any type of policy change and development, both under this existing Congress and FCC and under any new administration come November. I want to thank John and, and John for joining us today. Just to summarize some of the key points that we made today, we've talked about the phase one coronavirus response and its impact on the carriers, potentially with payments and, and any type of support to make up for missed revenue during this crisis. We've also talked about what's to come after that. Does another coronavirus relief bill include even more money to help with expanding CapEx or, you know, what comes with rural broadband? I think those are two very critical components. In addition to that, we also talked about the impact on the macro landscape in the telco industry for some of these carriers. Will it lead to greater M&A? We think so. How will the regulators react to that? It's an open question, but as long as it's outside of the, the big four, perhaps they'd be open to it if it helps out the consumers. These are all the issues that we're going to be following, and I wanted to thank you again, John Neuer, for bringing us some of your insight today. With that, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. In particular, I'd like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insight into the telecommunication policy area. Please know you can also follow us on Twitter at ACJ Analytics for further insights into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at ACG-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day, stay healthy, and we look forward to visiting with you in the near future.